Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh. I'm here today on TRSI. My friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer, is of course with me. You're still in the land of the living, Michael, after a short illness. Oh, the illness is not short. I am short, but it is not. I am gripped onto this world and this life with the tenaciousness of a Highland bobcat. Do you have one of those couches that in Victorian dramas women would lay on and fan themselves as they slowly lost consciousness? No, but I saw one in a second-hand shop there recently. I have to say, I don't. are they called fainting couches? Is that what they're actually called? I don't know. I think you should pick one up so that your lifestyle may become your death style. <laughs> yeah, that's a cheering thought. I might go for a chaise long. But I don't know if I have the figure to carry it off. Oh, yes. I meant to, as we start, to say last uh, episode, it was uh, Guy Fawkes night, which is obviously a divisive political moment, Michael. But today is the anniversary of a political moment, which I think reaches to people across all of the possible divisions and aisles, Michael. The 7th of November. Hmm. Is that the Feast of All Saints of Ireland? Is that it? It might be. That's not what I'm talking about, though. What are you talking about? So, in 2020, there was a press conference, Michael, that uh, was held by Rudy Giuliani. Now, this press conference was meant to take place at the Four Seasons, the hotel. But due to an accident, it was actually booked for a place called Four Seasons Total Landscaping. (laughs) Leading the Trump campaign to hold the press conference outside a landscaping company's garage door, which they had covered in Trump stickers. And why not? It was, um, as the press were quick to point out, located between the uh, funeral home and a sex shop. And it was five blocks away from the actual Four Seasons Hotel. (laughs) You see, the thing about that is, anybody else would have cancelled it or moved it back, or done something, you know? I thought the fact that they just went ahead and did it. There was something about that which was refreshing and different. And kind of spoke to the nature of the campaign that was going to be, I suppose. And uh, then if you remember, Michael, it turned out that the first person that Giuliani called up to the stand, to or the, to the podium to speak, turned out to be a convicted sex offender. <laughs> which traditionally is considered to be a mistake in American politics. You want to keep your sex offenders unconvicted. Traditionally, yes. You want them unconvicted and far away from your presidential campaign. Unless it is actually your your presidential candidate. Yeah, I remember looking into it because in America you can end up on the sex offender list for incredibly minor things um, that in other countries would not uh, constitute anything even approximating a sex offence conviction. But no, he was was on something I think was uh, sexual assault against uh, two girls, both of whom, if I remember correctly, were under 12. Yeah. So, like, the bad. The bad kind. The bad times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when that happened, and even people I knew who worked with the Trump campaign found it funny. Well, it was pretty good. For those who are out there being picky-picky, I just want to observe that actually the Feast of the All Saints of Ireland is the 6th of November. I'm sure everybody had the big party. But it is certainly Four Seasons Total Landscaping Day. <laughs> you know what? That, I wonder what that did for their business. Because I'm sure that, that their name has been repeated. and. Well, they started selling like um, commemorative t-shirts. 
But no, as I said, I, even when I was talking to people I knew who were on the campaign, initially they were deeply unhappy. But then there was a sort of, well, that's Giuliani. And then they just found it funny. You have to just you have to lean into that kind of thing. You can't do anything about it. You may as well enjoy it. Own it. I suppose we shall move on into it now that we've we've commemorated all of the days that need commemoration, Michael. Mm-hmm. It's apparently a thing we do now. There has been some information released on the um, National Broadband Plan, which I think is good to review in light of the government's new decision to retrofit every building which they could conceivably class as a house. So the National Broadband Plan, Michael, that's been running for a while, shall we say. Well, I put it this way, and I may be wrong, and God knows that's not an uncommon occurrence, but didn't the National Broadband Plan happen in the long, long time ago when Fianna Fáil was Fianna Fáil and, and in government, all virtually by itself? Their initial target was that by January of 2022, Michael, they would have linked up 115,000 houses yes. to the network. Because, you know, as as we were told, Michael, this is a problem, this is a, a uh, an issue of national significance that is holding Ireland's economy back and we need to get broadband to all of these people. And uh, the Business Post has now published the actual number they have gotten done up to the end of October. So, Michael, it's not a final figure. They still have, you know, November, December to pull this out. Yeah, the only thing is there are some holidays occurring over that period. You tend to see a a decline in productivity over the November, December period. So, I don't know. Our target is, what, 150,000, was it? The target is 115,000. 115,000, okay. And so far we've hit, what, 3,000? Uh, 2,700. <laughs> Sorry, because the headline, the headline on Sunday Business Post, if I remember, was that it said 3,000. I hadn't forgotten that it... <laughs> why does that make me laugh? I don't know why. <laughs> it's because the other number, the other big number in that headline, and not just the headline, but in the story, as we have been following it, is 5.7 billion euro, Gary. 5.7 billion euro the estimated and we've we've hit 2700 and i would love to know gary if anybody has had has done or would do some kind of an economic cost benefit on on those specific those specific 2700 households what that has added to the irish economy that those particular households now can stream netflix comfortably there's also there is a bit of ambiguity here because when you look at their targets uh, and the way the targets are described not just in the business post but in, in other newspapers as well they say that the target is to make the network available to that many premises now i sense there's a slight disconnect between available and installed yes so that's a 5.7 billion euro scheme uh it's only two years into its um it's only two years in, Michael. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on. It's two years in to this particular incarnation or iteration of this. Pre- this has been going on since Brian Cowan was the show and possibly Bertie Hearn. We've had committees and plans and formulations regarding the rolling out of broadband, but it wasn't being rolled out sufficiently or quickly or 
prospects because of shadows and mountains and things that, that it would never get there. This is two, two years into this version of it. But you know, the, the N11 is still the N11, no matter how many, you keep doing the upgrades. Yes, the, the road gets better, but still the same bloody road. Uh, 5.7 billion, not to be tedious, because you know how I hate to be tedious. Many moons ago, some clever person decided to look at the cost benefits of, you know, investing in technology and good stuff. Because everybody kind of automatically assumes that, oh, well, we if you give loads and loads of money to universities to and to companies to do it on research and development, that's a very good thing. And the more money you spend in higher education, that's a good thing. And the more money you spend on tech, it's a good thing. Korea, South Korea, was the first interneted country in the world. The South Korean, South Korean government decided to go forward and they were going to be get there first. They spent what was considered a lot of money at the time. The figure in my head, which I may simply be plucking from the air, something like 15 billion, whatever it was. And the, I remember reading a, a series of articles in The Economist and other places like that. They said that when you actually, when people went and looked at it and broke it down and fiddled around with pundits, they couldn't really see that it had made any great bit of a difference at all. South Korea felt very happy and proud of itself because it had had lots of internet. And for those people in South Korea who were trying to stream, not Netflix, Netflix at the time, but what was available on the internet at the time, which we all know that what that was, it was it was grand. But the no, I, I am deeply sceptical, and I'm willing to be convinced, but that the actual value to the economy of adding this uh, extra capacity of people who are otherwise being, and also. Now, on top of that, that these people wouldn't actually be as quickly reached eventually and and much more cheaply by private companies just doing their own thing. But even, even with new technologies, Gary, a lot of the location of the problem and access to certain... But, you know, I'm, there are new technologies coming along all the time. I mean, the price of what... I remember when my briefly my brother had to use... Oh, this is a very long, very long time ago. I had to use um, satellite a satellite web connection for his internet. He moved to, and that was horrendously expensive. But that kind of thing has got less and less and less and less expensive. Yeah, yeah. This program has been running, I think, for nine years. Now, two years of actual activity, but I think it was nine years since this recent sort of thing has happened, and even longer if you count the discussions onto it. And the problem with something that runs that long is that the government signs off on this massive spending packet, everyone is lined up, mm. and then it simply gets outpaced by commercial entities, because commercial entities don't take nine years to do something. So, have you looked at the speeds that this broadband will guarantee, Michael? Shit speeds, I think is the technical term. I mean, if you're on dial-up, it's going to be terribly impressive, but if you were... <laughs> you know, is there anybody left on dial-up, I wonder? I, I, I know people who are still on dial-up. No, really? Just because they, they, they tend, they're in weird positions where they fall between things. But I think it's a surprising amount of people are. But I was looking at the current spend of this so far. Now, the Irish Examiner in October said that the plan had already spent $132 million, Michael. Right. Now, if 2,700 houses have been <laughs> joined up, that is a cost per house of... Basically fifty thousand euro. Yes. Now I'm. I don't want to suggest, Michael, that the project may be fucked. <laughs> but I think at a price of fifty thousand euro per house, 
there may be some concerns about the scalability of this project. Now, I assume a lot of that is the basic underlying work, so no, I don't think that is going to be the end number, but it's not where you want to be right now. This is in the context of the same, same from, but is all of the stuff about retrofitting, right? And all the stuff that we're, all the, the state is going to do, presumably, well, the state is going to do, the state's going to pay for, and the state will set up structures, but ultimately will have to be, it'll have to be farmed out to non-state uh, operators. And they're now saying that, you know, the retrofitting for second-hand old houses or second-hand houses is now, you're talking 20 years before it pays it back the cost. Because we're constantly talking, oh, it'll pay for itself, it'll pay for itself, pay for itself. And they say, oh, it'll be 15 years or maybe 20 years. Well, you know, when, when, when the government says to me, Gary, it'll take 15 years or maybe 20 years, what I hear is it'll take 25 years, maybe 30. And that's if it ever does. That five point seven billion has been cre- had that it didn't used to be five point seven billion. It's also worth pointing out. It used to be less than that. I like I I have looked into this before from being in various houses, and the cost to retrofit can vary incredibly, based not just on the size of the property, but the type of property. So I mean, if you are living in an older property that maybe has you know those solid stone walls, Michael. Yeah. Things like that you are looking at a hefty, hefty bill. And so, like, if it's going to cost you 50000 to retrofit your house and the government is going to give you 14000 that just means you're not retrofitting your house. All you're doing is paying higher energy bills that the government are deliberately driving up in order to get you to agree to pay the remaining 36000 You see, that's the, that's the wicked cleverness of it. On the face of it, you'd look at it and you say... There's no way in the world this is ever going to go. I'm never going to be paid back for this because it makes absolutely no sense for me to spend all this money because I'm never going to get it back. But the government, you see, is so much cleverer than that. They're not just going to put energy prices up this year, Gary, or next year. Energy prices keep going up and up and up and up and up. So if they have generated, or will have generated a system where you will definitely get your money back eventually. Simply because otherwise you might as well you might as well burn the house and sit around it because that'll be the most effective way of keeping yourself warm. If you are someone on the average industrial wage, yes, you could be looking at a cost to retrofit your home of more than a hundred percent of your annual wage. Yes, and the government is going has explicitly adopted a policy that says if you don't do that, we're going to screw you. Yes. And yet, eventually, it may work out that you're being screwed more than you would have been if you'd paid for it. How exactly are you going to pay for it? Like, particularly if you have a mortgage or you have children or you have any sort of outgoing that makes it difficult for you to just get a load of 50,000. No, come on, on, okay. The government never said to you that you should be getting either mortgages. The government wasn't responsible for you to have, having children. And the government isn't responsible for you earning the average industrial wage. You know, if you had wanted, Gary, if you had wanted to go out and take a degree in computer science and have a starting wage of 85,000, well, you could have done that, but you didn't. A lot of these people, you know, I have very little sympathy for that. That kind of argument, that's just encouraging mediocrity and people not trying hard enough. I would love to talk to some of the rural, like Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil TDs, <laughs> and just say, so when we adopted this policy <laughs> and Sinn Féin came out and said that they didn't approve on it because it would screw the poor, yes. did you ever have a moment where you went, oh God, oh, like people are going to notice that. Like, the Irish Examiner has a piece in it 
today. Uh, and the guy is writing about what it would cost to retrofit his home, which is 108 square meters, Michael. Now, 200 square meters would not be unusual for a property. Like, that'd be a good size house. For a 108 square meter property, now this is an older property, so that's going to drive it up. But he also already done some of the stuff himself, so that would bring it down. 65,000 for 108 square meters. Is, hold on, is that is is that credible? For a, it's a stone built detached home. Yeah, absolutely. Sixty five grand, and what 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 will he get from from the the other taxpayers? That we he'll go he'll get a grant of fourteen hundred, and that'll get him up from if he spends the sixty five thousand, it will go from he will get the grant if he can bring the house from a G rating to a B one rating. So to get the grant, you need to actually demonstrate that you've hit the new um, energy rating. That's not a problem. I I know a guy, he'll, he'll get you that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not a problem. Don't worry about that. So you get 14000 of a grant of a cost base of 65000 So that comes out, it's only 49000 now. Yeah, but you see, Michael, that's for 108 square metres. You could easily have 200 square metre house. And I would be very interested in exactly what that means. And this guy had done some of this already. Do you know what, Gary... There are houses of the dimensions of 108 square metres, detached houses in rural Ireland, over the other side of the Shannon, that would struggle to make €65,000. I just have a feeling, now this this is my political leaning, Michael, and obviously I'm coming from a very right-wing, conservative perspective. Alt-right. I think it should not be the policy of any government that wishes to remain the government to screw people if they can't afford to spend a once-off outgoing of €50,000. Now, Michael, some may say that's just because I'm predisposed to the rich, but I think <laughs> it's just as a government policy, not a good idea. Sorry, I was, I was talking to a, a county councillor uh, from, shall we say, a rural Leinster area recently, and uh, Fine Gaelor, and he said to me, I said, you know, you're feeling happy enough, or the poll's a bit, he said, oh, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it. Said, What's wrong with you? He said, he remembered talking to mates of his who were working in Fianna Fáil back in the day, whenever, say it was in, in 2011, coming at that time, and he said, what they all said to him was, it wasn't the noise that frightened him, it was the silence. He said that that they had that very strong sense, you know, like in one of those 1960s like the Zulu movies where suddenly everything goes silent and you can see nobody, but there's the terrible sense they're out there in the long grass and they're waiting for you and he said this was his sense and he said he's, he said this was uh, uh, he'd had this conversation with a number of his colleagues and friends around the country that there are a lot of rural finnegalers who right now are terrified that they're out there in the long grass waiting for them they're not saying anything they're not giving out they're not shouting and roaring but the cold, implacable desire to wreak a terrible vengeance has set upon the voter. And it's not that kind of thing that will shift with, you know, a frost that will shift with a, a bit of a sun uh, by 11 o'clock. No, this is something that is, the iron has entered their soul. And he thinks that there's a real chance, unless there's some kind of, a, a kind of a turnaround in policy that he can't imagine, or some kind of a magic hat money job. But right now, you're talking. You you know those houses you see them all around Ireland. They were you know they were called the, they were the county council cottages. You know that were built maybe sort of the end of the, the end of the the nineteenth beginning of the twentieth century, 
and they were on what was a half an acre of land or something. What they what they called that? The half acre cottages, the acre cottage. Now some of them have been over the years been very well maintained and they're lovely houses. But if they if you weren't in the position, maybe for whatever reasons, or maybe it was elderly people and that's it wasn't maintained, and you're now being asked to spend this kind of money, and these are houses that are always been heated by some kind of whether it was coal or turf or timber or whatever and they're going to have to be changed over because the cost of running them heating them is just going to become proud those people are just they're really really unhappy i think the the problem you know the standard of government is take money quietly and give it back loudly yes always and the problem i think for them is that that this is the opposite of that for all the people talk about it, once the bills start piling up and once they actually start pushing for these policies, it's going to become immediately obvious to an ever-increasing amount of people exactly how much this is going to cost them. And as we saw, lots of people say climate change is very important. All of these things are important. Until you ask them about how much they're willing to pay for it. And the other problem is that it's a standard in Irish politics that terrible things happen, but there's no alternative. Now they have one alternative because Sinn Féin doesn't support any of this. Yeah. And Sinn Féin is rising. So if you hate everything about Sinn Féin, but the government has introduced a policy where you see it's going to cost you, let's say, €45,000, and Sinn Féin haven't, well, I think people might vote for Sinn Féin who don't like things about Sinn Féin, but don't want to spend €45,000. You see, Gary, at the risk of stating the bleeding obvious, and not just going through the usual sneery, jeery, corrosive, nasty thing that we always do. But just simple. We're talking about people. Uh, we, we, you know that, that phrase, uh, uh, what is it? Fuel poverty. Mm -hmm. There have been times in the past 20 years when I've heard people talk about fuel poverty and I have been kind of sceptical about the nature and the extent of what they were really. That's not the case now. When you look at the kinds of houses we're talking about and the kinds of people we're talking about, and we're not talking about five or six people. We're talking about thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And the people who are at the, the wrong end of the economic shitty stick. Look at the price. It's really uncomplicated. Look at the price of petrol and diesel they're putting into their 12-year-old and 15-year-old cars, which they're only going to be allowed to keep going for very little longer. Look at the price of briquettes, the price of coal. Look how easy, or rather how difficult it is now, for somebody in the country, once upon a time they would have gone to the local woods or gone to a local farmer and bought a tree or two trees and sawed it down and chopped it up and put it into the wood house and left it there to dry so they would have timber for that. All of those options, those traditional heat, those options, they're gone. You're talking about a reality of fuel poverty. You're talking about people who, if it, was a, if, if it comes into it, we have a cold winter, will struggle to stay warm in their houses and whose only other option is going to be to retrofit their house in a way which is simply impossible. This is, okay, joking aside, for most of these people, this is just fantasy. I go back to that word all the time in this discussion, it's a bit boring on me, I suppose, but this isn't, for many, many people, this isn't a reality, this is not possible. That You're talking about 108, 108 square metres, which is like a small two, three bedroom house, right? Detached. Most likely a bungalow as well. Yeah. I would sing the story. Are you talking about sixty-five thousand? Throw fourteen grand onto the forty-nine. They don't have forty-nine thousand to do this. That just that's not. That's what kind of a fantasy is that? 
you remember the policy uh, a while ago? I, I must actually check they ever moved on it. That you'd be able to get loans to cover the cost of retrofitting and you'd pay it off on your energy bill. Because what particularly older people, Michael, who might live in, you know, homes they grew up in, things like that, really want as they get older is uh, tens of thousands of euro of debt. That's a real fucking vote winner. Oh, absolutely. That's something they want. Let's make them feel warm and happy at night. Let's talk about some of the numbers, the actual numbers here. And we'll go from the Irish Examiner article because they got super homes to give them some of the information on costs. And super homes would know because they do this. Yes. So super homes tell the Irish Examiner that the costs can range from about 25000 for a smaller home built since 2000 to over 70000 for older, larger homes, while its average retrofit is €56,000 gross or 37000 net of grants. Now, the government has said that this will pay itself off within 20 years, Michael, right? If you want to pay off €37,000 and you want to break even after 20 years, yeah, that means that everyone who doesn't take that grant is going to have to pay an additional €1,500 a year on their energy bills. Mm -hmm. Or else you have spent more on the grant than you would have had you done nothing. So if the government are seriously saying that, now that seems insane. But if the government are seriously saying that, you are talking about increases in energy prices that are simply unworkable. Now, more likely, the government doesn't know what it's talking about and is just giving figures. It's such a reassuring thing to be told, isn't it? Say when you're 60. Oh, don't worry. Only 20 years or 25 years, maybe. And you'll have paid it all off. That's, that, that's such a reassuring thing to be told. If, you are, if you're going to say, oh, in 20 years, you'll be better off. You can't have looked at these figures because over 20 years, 3,700 is 1,541 euro a year. No, and also, I mean, without being excessively dark about the thing, there's the famous response of John Maynard Keynes, the economist, when somebody was talking to him about the long run, in the long run, and Tooch Keynes said, yes, 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 in the long run, we're all dead. And there's a hell of a lot of this, it seems to me, is about the long run we are all with. There are a hell of a lot of people are going to be dead before they're better off. Right, even if we take the 25,000 for a smaller house built since 2000, so with better initial energy uh, ratings, for that to make sense over 20 years, that's a costing of €1,041 Euro every year. So are you going to save €1,041 Euro every year on energy for 20 years? I find that very unlikely. You see, I don't, Gary. I don't because I, uh, from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, I think we are facing into, if they are politically allowed to get away with it, a continual rise in the price of it, of energy. That's, that is part of the plan that's built in. This is not a glitch in the programme. This is part of the programme. You have said, you've said before, Gary, and we've all said, these are, these price nudge guy these price nudges these what what what's the price leaders i can't remember the nonsense words they use but anyway in other words you, you change the price in order to, to change the behavior unless it's hurting they're not working if it doesn't actually make you hurt if it doesn't affect you then you're not going to change so there has to be hurt and i think that's part it's built into it i i have no problem believing that you're going to see really seriously substantial even this year in, in the next 18 months this winter i think people will be shocked when they look at what they've spent on 
their energy costs between electricity and heating costs this year. Oh, I should note there that when I was talking about the grant and I said that energy would have to increase by that spectacular amount, what I actually meant is you would need to save that amount between the passive savings you'd make and the uh, any increases in energy that might come about. Yeah. So it's actually not just increase; it's both. But Michael, let's take that seventy thousand retrofitting cost. Yes. Seventy thousand. Twenty years? No. For that to make sense, over forty years, you would need to save seventeen hundred and fifty euro a year in energy costs. I don't think any of these numbers make sense. And the fact that they're coming out and saying, oh, in 20 years, it'll be fine, just indicates to me they don't know what they're talking about. And this has always been the problem with retrofitting. A lot of the time, it just does not make economic sense within a standard lifetime. And then, of course, you have to deal where if you're saying, oh, in 40 years, it'll balance out. Well, in 40 years, the requirements and technology will be entirely different, or the material will have broken down, or you'll have to redo something. So... At a certain point, the maths becomes impossible. All of this is also based on the assumption that we have any kind of understanding of what the energy costs are going to be. Now, to the extent that they can keep energy costs increasing because they're pursuing a particular kind of climate policy, then there's a certain degree of truth out. The reality is we have no way of knowing what energy costs are going to be. When was Hubbard's peak? Hubbard... Hubbard's peak was supposed to be something around 1980, sorry, 1997, 98, something like that, wasn't it? When uh, the Hubbard's peak was, was the, the notional point at which we would, where you, you would reach maximal extraction of oil. And uh, the point about once you reach the maximal point with, and you don't have other very, very large scale discoveries, the amount of capacity available to you actually starts to decline very quickly and you get into this terrible energy crisis. And we were looking at oil up at $150, $160 a barrel. Well, we now know, Gary, if we take away economic incentives or disincentives because of the attitude you have to that particular form of energy, that the world has plenty of oil. The peak is a long, long way away. We don't have a shortage of things on the planet or in the planet to create generate energy it's because it's the wrong kind of energy now what we will find what we what, what technology may or may not be able to do to alter the effects that those types of energy have or if our new technologies it, we, we may may finally make the great breakthrough in storage with the say with wind energy we have no way of knowing practically speaking what in, in any in short term maybe but medium to long term what energy costs or what energy you're going to be we, we don't know so this is all nonsense but whether it is or it isn't what we do know now what we can tell now is to what extent this is practically affordable to people on a certain income and we're talking about the the cost of the retrofit one thing we should point out michael is that most people are going to have to take uh, if they're going to do that, are going to have to take out a loan. And I've been having a look at this in the last while. A lot of banks now offer a green loans, what they call. So for stuff like this, you're looking at about a 6.3 to about a 6.9% APR on that. Okay. So annual, that's the annual percentage rate. So that's you're not just paying 40,000. You're paying 40,000 plus 6.25 or 6.9 or whatever over however long this takes to do. Now, Gary, 
Do we have any sense of numbers about how many houses they want to retrofit? I think they're saying 500,000. That's that's what they're... The number that they're going on, I, I think it's a bit of an arbitrary number, but you, know, you might as well go with some number, so let's go with that. They're going, they're, so they're going to retrofit half, half a million houses. They're going to build at least 30,000 houses a year, right? Now, we are already, we are told... Uh, looking at a situation where the Irish construction industry is heading towards full capacity fairly quickly anyway. To what extent are the increased, potential increases either in costs of materials and or very substantial increase in the costs of labour factored in to these retrofitting costs in next year, the year after and five years time? So an important point to understand here Michael is how the Irish government does things like this like how it analyzes things like tax increases tax movements plans like this they only and this is consistent across everything they only consider the immediate first order impacts so if they do this it will cause a certain amount they have never and this has actually caused problems before done anything on the consequences of those actions now, that is a normal thing in other countries. Other countries, if they put this plan together, would try and estimate what this would do to the building trade and if it may, in fact, be problematic because of that. But nothing I've seen from the department so far has given any indication that that is that they have done anything on that. I mean, they would have to know it's going to have an impact, but they don't seem to have tried to work out exactly what that impact would be, which, considering the department itself is saying that the retrofitting could cost 28 billion euro. Something, by the way, Michael, they have said is going to be primarily borne by um, households. Yes, I mean, straight up about that. Also, there was a report, now again, again, I don't know if it was right or wrong, but which said that as a proportion of total costs, if you compare a retrofit to a new, to a new build, the, pro- the proportion of the cost in a retrofit which is taken up by labor skilled labor is higher than in a, in a than in a house so that if we're looking and i suspect we are going to be looking at very substantial increases we've already seen substantial increases in 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 labor costs in construction not quite the same degree as we've seen in material costs which have been absolutely incredible that's going to impact in a way which i'm skeptical that has been fully factored in in the costs in this either i'm just talking about rte but just as a, a bridge across from that I did read an article from RTE early the year on this from one of their business journalists. And I was going into quite a lot of detail on it. It was talking about loans. It was actually a pretty good article. But then at the end of it, it had a section called, Is It Worth It? Mm -hmm. And what it said, Michael, was, as long as you can afford it, it is always worth it. And then they gave some figures of of how much you could save by going from a a D-rated home up to an A-rated home. And there were substantial figures, Michael. They were in... But what they didn't take into account is age. If you spend 50000 on something and save a 1000 a year and you're in your 80s, that is never <laughs> going to work out for you. Yeah, the, the maths is going to catch up on you. RTE's readership demographic is substantially older than um, the journal, just the populational average. And it did actually kind of annoy me because you would think you would use that knowledge to point out to people that actually, if you're older, it's probably not going to make sense. I mean, maybe if you're in a very particular house type and you're at a very, very low rating. But in that case, you should talk to someone and see what the saving is. You shouldn't just assume it's going to be fine based on the average. 
but it kind of it's one of those things that when I read it, I thought about RTE's involvement with covering climate now. And RTE, for those who didn't see, also signed a new climate pledge um, just before the weekend. This one was signed by BBC, Sky, a load of them. It's substantially less problematic, I think, than their involvement with covering climate now. But it does contain some provisions, particularly the first, about how they're going to encourage people to mm. move to greener lifestyles. Be inspirational. But when I read this, and, you know, is it worth it? Yes, it's always worth it. That's not true. I would think the journalist knew that was also not true. There are many instances in which it is not worth it. But the question then becomes, and this is one of the reasons I've been focusing so much on Ortiz's links with covering climate now. Once you get involved with a group like that, there becomes an open question of every editorial or article's decision, whether or not that is what you actually think, whether or not it is truthful, or whether or not it's being filtered through a particular NGO's or organization's prism of what you should do. Mm-hmm. And that kind of came to the um, fore again. And this is what I want to talk about in relation to RTE. RTE have produced, based on a search of RTE's website. Now, I'm going to say I did this using RTE's own search function, which is garbage. I'm sure people will be shocked to hear that. Yes. RTE have done between... <laughs> If you put an Extinction Rebellion in RTE, it'll tell you that they have 163 stories about um, Extinction Rebellion. If you ask them to sort by date, it tells you there's 189. Those numbers remain consistent, regardless of how often you swap over, but I have no idea why that is the case. Okay. But recently, the founder, or one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, it was discovered that he had released a, a very particular document. Now, that document was called Advice to Young People as You Face Annihilation. I put up an article about it yesterday that people may have seen. And what it is, is it is a document he wrote particularly to be given to young people, hence the name, talking about what needed to be done about the climate. And I would like to read a quote from it. Now, I am going to mention, this is not a pleasant quote. You may want to skip a bit ahead if you're... um, not into that sort of thing. So he's talking about climate change leading to total societal collapse. A sort of Mad Max slash rapture, but with less hope to go around. So he's talking about uh, a climate change that will cause a collapse in global food production, which will then cause societal collapse. And this is what he says. Those who have been in denial will experience massive social and mental distress. Suicides will soar and mental breakdown will become the norm. It is at this point that people will take matters into their own hands as the food runs out. Again, this is likely to happen suddenly. One week, Tesco's will be short of a few items. The next week, there'll be no bread, unless you want to pay £50 for a loaf in the car park. Public order will break down and it will happen quickly, because people will get hungry. People will break into stores and into houses and take what they can and kill those that stand in their way. The end point of social collapse then is war played out in every city, every neighbourhood, every street. This is what is going to happen to your generation, and this appalling situation is liable to become commonplace. A gang of boys will break into your house demanding food. They will see your mother, your sister, your girlfriend, and they will gang rape her on the kitchen table. They will force you to watch, laughing at you. At the end, they will accuse you of enjoying it. They'll take a cigarette and burn out your eyes with it. You will not be able to see anything again. That is the reality of climate change. 
because this is the reality of social collapse, what it means for you and your generation. They're not going to tell you this at school. So, I would remind people that that is something being told to children. I would also make the point that you change societal collapse or anything about the environment with hell or demons, and you have got yourself some good old-fashioned fire and brimstone indoctrination of the type that you just don't see anymore. It also then goes on to talk about war and slaughter and the early deaths of thousands of millions of young people. And, uh, oh, this line, Michael. If you don't feel the terror and horror of what is to come, then you soon will. And with it, you will feel the rage, the hatred, and the despair. When I first heard this, I have to say that my first sort of instinctive reaction was that that's, this is the, the work of a psycho. I, I saw it. It got reported in The Spectator and a couple of the British newspapers um, before it got reported in Gripped. But the annoying thing was, I had actually seen it before. I had been sent it, or I'd found it a good while ago, and I had read it. And because on the document itself, it says it's from him, but it, there's no direct link to it anywhere I could find, I assumed it was a fake, because... You couldn't believe that it could be this extreme mad barking. Yeah, you, you take it and you have people saying, you know, school isn't going to tell you. Uh, the middle class people who run the climate change world are, are ensuring the worst will happen. They're not trying to protect you. They're trying to protect themselves. You know, the slaughter of thousands of millions of people. Everything. I just, I, no one is going to actually, even if they think it. And there are people in the, particularly the deep greens who do think it. They're never going to write it down, particularly if it's addressed to children. And then, when it got published on The Spectator, I thought I would go have a look at this. Now, I actually didn't see any proof of its, um, that he had actually authored it on The Spectator, but it made me look into it again. And I found that a video had been posted on the Extinction Rebellion UK YouTube channel earlier this year with the same title. Now, it was slightly different, but in the description of it, it linked to this document and said that he had written it. So, yeah, it's a legitimate document. It was written by one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion. It looks like it was written in either 2017 or 2019. I'll put a link to it below. Extinction Rebellion have, um, they've disabled sharing on the document and you can't save it. And they've also disabled the ability to cut and paste anything from it. But it's still entirely publicly available. I don't know if it's worthwhile mentioning in passing that the United Nations uh, forecasts for the 21st century, even under the the bad scenarios have food production increasing. This is a dystopian fantasy. And I'm deliberately saying fantasy because as I listen to it or I read it, I have a sense that there is somewhere in this, somewhere in that voice, there is what Wothouse would have caused, called a consummation desirous to be achieved. This is... There's an excitement to that writing, Gary, which is disturbing. And obviously a, a graphicness, which is horrific. And if this has been directed at children, that's abusive. I would also point out that this is not a short document. This thing is 20 pages long. Um, and this was written, again, for a group of children. So, like, even if you agree with them, is this something you should be telling children? That, um... Everyone is lying to them, but the future is entirely death, misery, and rape. 
if that is what they're telling children, that kind of explains some of the polling of anxiety and fear about environmental issues that we're seeing amongst teenagers. Which is horrific. Listen, the anxiety levels with teenagers anyway is just becoming... For years we've talked about this a mental health crisis, and for a very long time I, I, I felt that a lot of it was overstated and rather particular and situational. But now, I think we're, look, we are genuinely facing into... A, a, a crisis of negative emotion, of anxiety, and adults are playing a not insignificant part in stoking that anxiety, in feeding that anxiety. Even the name of the group that this was to be given to, like the environmental group for children is called The Last Generation. God, you know, it's like a PDG, that, you know, the children of men, that P.G. James thing. I don't know. I, I don't know if Last Generation is like an XR uh, youth initiative, but they're promoting it and putting up material related to on their official social media. But that that's that's one thing. That is that is a story in itself. But what I noted, Michael, was that it hasn't been mentioned in RTE. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that RTE have to report on these things. Although I think the founder of one of the most major. Uh, environmental activist groups in the world saying these sort of things particularly to children is a story yes but i just wanted to mention it in relation again to the covering climate now thing because covering climate now says that you should not disparage or mock or damage uh, legitimate environmental activism groups because you know they have the right idea even if they are occasionally wrong yeah and so i think it's a demonstration of the problem that orti have created for themselves are they not reporting it because they don't think it's news? Or are they not reporting it because they have taken an ideological position on it? And it doesn't need to be that they're not reporting it because of an ideological position. Because the truth of the matter is they've created for themselves a situation where anytime anyone becomes aware that they are attached to covering climate now, the question then has to be asked. I can't see that this is not something that should be or indeed must be reported. If for no other reason, that this to me is a child safety issue. And parents, parents we all know, if you, you, you your, your kid comes home and says, oh, well, there's an environmental group, they're coming to talk to us about uh, whatever. And parents of a certain generation certainly think, oh, well, that's about pollution, it's about whatever. The environment is good, Gary. People would like the environment, that's good people. And young people are interested in the environment. And, you know, tomorrow belongs to you and... The young people of the future, and we have to keep this plan for the young people. So, of course, they're going to be interested. And that's a positive thing. And it's better that young people are engaged rather than disengaged. It's better that they're active and involved and trying to take control and have a sense that they can control their destinies rather than feel that they're just sort of tossed around on, on the seas and there's nothing they can do because that will breed, you know, nihilism and despondency. So I can see that parents... You're not going to investigate every bloody thing that comes around. This is a child safety issue. This is the kind of thing that parents need to know that is in the ether around their children and that they need to be protected from. It's probably not what parents would assume their children are being told. But you know, Michael, when those kids are like, I just don't see much point in the future. I'm like, yeah, you know, this all kind of ties together. Yes, I think that would be a perfectly reasonable position to take, you know, if that's the future. Yeah, and so we have... Callum says it, Extinction Rebellion, amplify it, and then because it is the correct thing to do and no one wants to speak against them, 
everyone else just says, well, you know, climate change is a very serious issue and doesn't deal with the fact that you have people telling children that their parents are going to be gang-raped on their kitchen table if this problem isn't solved. And their eyes are going to be burnt out with cigarettes. Yes, and they will be drafted to fight a foreign war where thousands of millions of young people will die. And that is their future, and everyone is hiding it from them, but that is absolutely the truth. And, uh, Michael, if you search for Extinction, Extinction Rebellion, one of the top stories you will see on RTE is what you can do to fight climate change. As the consequences of climate change become ever more apparent, psychologists have recorded a surge in eco-anxiety. Mm. Feelings of fear and hopelessness brought on by the scale of the threat. You're like, well, if we're allowing conversations like that to happen without anyone going, that's insane. That's not going to happen. No one serious is predicting that will happen. That's lunacy. But instead, it's like, well, you know, it's a very important issue. You have to discuss it. You have to get it out there. You have to hear it. People need to know. You know, we need to talk about the potential negative downsides. I must say, Michael, because I, you know, just because I could, I did send John Williams, the head of news at RTE, a link to the uh, Gripped article and say that if you would like a copy of the document or the steps we took to verify it, I would be absolutely delighted to send them on to him. Because John Williams seems to spend a lot of time on Twitter. I thought, you know, I should make him aware, Michael. Yeah, I'm sure he appreciates, um, I'm sure he appreciates your efforts uh, on that, Gary, and and he's probably sending you maybe a a little gift around to say thank you for your care and concern. I know, and you know, it was driven entirely, I think, Michael, by care and concern, and not, as I've said before, a desire to simply ensure that no one can ever say they didn't know. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful condemnation. You will never be able to say, nobody told me. <laughs> so that is the uh, that is the news. I think Extinction Rebellion has become based on that rather cult like. You think there is like like if if there had been a line of like now join me in the communal drinking of the Kool Aid at the end of that document, it would not have felt out of place. No, no, and you you kind of got to worry that sometime as some if not necessarily not that group, but. A group like it or a group influenced by it may indeed arrive precisely at that point. It's also, I thought it was quite interesting how little is directed at the environment. The environment is brought up as a thing that will go badly and there will be all these negative consequences. But the real focus is on societal breakdown and this sort of apocalyptic destruction of uh, order. But the focus is on the the pornography of the violence. It's a, it's it's a it's it is a, it's a pornographic uh, fantasy. That's and he, the details are absolutely typical of it. I didn't think we allowed adults to talk about pornographic fantasies in front of children. I I I, I thought we discouraged it. Uh, I thought that would be a reasonable thing to do. But anyway, you, you I you should keep an eye out for that story and see if it's mentioned anywhere other than gripped because as I said the British newspapers have covered it. But uh, RTE have not. Nor did RTE cover Hallam's previous comments about the Holocaust. Or at least they don't turn up on a search function. Yeah, they were unfortunate. They were unfortunate. We will be back on Wednesday. All the best.